Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. It's Sunday morning in New York, but I'm talking to someone and it's not morning where they are. So, Urs Ripke, how close was I? That's fine. Hi, Dave. How do you actually say it, though? I say Urs Ripke. Okay, I wasn't that close. I tried. <laughs> so, anyway, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Tell the folks where you are. Cool. I'm in sunny Hamburg, Germany. Actually, it's a, one of the rare sunny days in Hamburg. It's like 23 degrees Celsius here. And I would love to go to the park once we're done here. Right now, I'm sitting in my beautiful office and looking out to the trees. All it's right, really cool. Nice. Well, thank you for taking time out of the sunny day. Um, we're going to talk about the core cycle of agile product development. But before we get into that, could you let folks know a little bit about your background and kind of your spin on all this stuff? Sure. So I'm a certified Scrum trainer. I train CSMs and CSPOs. That's, uh, for those not in the know, that's uh, certified Scrum masters and certified Scrum product owners and uh, advanced classes for IT Agile, a German consultancy in Hamburg, Germany, and all over the Republic. And I, apart from these trainings, I do management coaching, leadership consulting, stuff like that. And well, in my spare time, I'm a gamer, I'm a martial artist, I love to do Tai Chi and train Tai Chi. So teaching people stuff in some way has always been with me. Um, yeah, that's what, what got me here. Cool. In my first life, I was a software developer. And at some point, I realized that helping people to make better products, to build better software was much more fun to me than actually doing it myself, because doing it myself became repetitive. So I got into coaching, I got into training, and yeah, here I am. All right, cool. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad that you're here. So when we were, we were talking about product ownership, and you brought up the core cycle of agile product development, and that is something that I wasn't, like as a term, wasn't really familiar with. So can you kind of give the folks that are listening a, a kind of an overview of what that actually is and, and how it plays into the classes that you teach? Yeah, sure. So for me... At the heart of agility is the customer making a, a great product, something that people really love to have. Because without that, I, I can't think of doing a viable product. And customers in general, well, they, they have something they want or they have something they need. They have some kind of problem they want solved. And now... They, they approach me, they approach my product development team or my company as a, uh, as a supporter, as, a, as the provider of solutions. And we as, as teams, well, we figure out the solutions for the customers. And this, well, this is not, not special when it comes to Agile. This is general product development. What makes this special for Agile is that we not just figure out a solution to this want or need, but do so iteratively and incrementally. So it's not just one cycle, but going through the cycle time and time and time again, always okay. improving some little thing or always improving some, some part of the product that's, not, that's particularly important to the customer. And all the while, with, with each cycle, we improve. We improve how our product fits our market and we improve how we as a team, as a provider of services or goods, collaborate and how we collaborate with our customers. And that's, that's a cycle in a nutshell. Okay. 
So am I correct in this? I'm, I'm guessing that German customers are not that different from U.S. customers. Most of the I hope so. stuff I, I run into, they come in the door and they are absolutely certain about what it is that they that they want. And they're right. very, very clear. And I could get them to, to fill out an old-timey requirements document or just help me create an initial backlog. But they're crystal clear about what I have to give them. And when I bring them exactly what they asked for, they tell me it's not what they wanted. Right. How should I know what I want before I know what, what you can deliver? Yeah. Um, or, so, or, or how do they know what they need? They, the difference between want and need, I think, no. is confusing. Yeah, they, they don't know it. Actually, that's, that's an issue. If I, if I work as a, as a product owner, as a product manager or anything of that sort, one of my, my main issues is actually convincing the, the customer to stick in his problem domain so I can focus on the solution domain. Okay. Um, and usually people come over, they know, they know whatever, they know my tool, they know Google Maps, and they know their email tool. Yeah. And then they figure out some weird, weird amalgam thereof, some kind of solution um, that might eventually solve the problem. But in fact, there might be much better solutions. And so my task as a product owner is to figure out what's the problem behind the solution the customer actually wants to have. Okay. And then I, with my team, can figure out a proper solution that fits our intended, our, our roadmap for the product and that maybe, hopefully, fit, fits the customer's problem much better than what he originally imagined. So when you say they should stay in their problem domain, what do you mean by that? I'm sure there's folks listening who haven't heard that heard it expressed that way before. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I what I think of that nobody knows his own problem or his his own issues, his own challenges, as well as a customer, the one wanting to change something about the way he's working or about his life. Okay. I mean, this is why people go and actually purchase a product because something in their life should change, or something in their daily work should change. So, and those people figure out the product could solve this problem, fill that need, or satisfy that want. Okay. Um, this is what I what I call the problem domain. What's what's the one thing they want to change next in their daily work or in their lives? So I want to try to draw a parallel and let me know if this is in sync with what you're thinking. So. Somebody comes in the door and says, I have a headache, give me an aspirin or give me a Tylenol or give me an ibuprofen. And what they want is the fix. But what, what you're advocating for is that before we take the aspirin, we actually figure out what's giving them the headache. Yes. Actually, that. yes, yes, that's right. So um, when, when we look at complexity research, people will tell us that there are simple issues like, um, where, where there's a prescri prescriptive solution that's right every time. If you, if you look at something like the Kinevin model, are you familiar yeah. with that? Yeah. Yep. So there, we have the simple or obvious domain where there are very obvious solutions like headache, take ibuprofen or take aspirin. Um, and then we go to uh, complicated domains where some research is, is due to figure out the proper solution. And then we go to the complex domain where um, actually research alone won't fit it but we rather have to to build a small thing and then figure out what the next step is because it's all covered in some kind of fog of war so product development generally takes place in the complex domain and this okay. is why 
where we can't just take the simple solution, apply it and be done with it. Yeah. For, for your headache example, taking this aspirin in some cases or in most cases will make the, the headache go away. But there's absolutely no certainty that the, the underlying cause for the headache will be resolved as well. Like if I have headache every other day because I tend to, to crouch into my computer working with a small laptop um, yeah. and the headache comes from a, from a um, sore back, then, well, taking the aspirin will make it go away for today, but it will be back tomorrow and maybe I should figure out how to change my posture. So how do you go about having that conversation with folks where you're trying to get them to kind of just slow down a little bit and really understand the problem instead of, I mean, I can see where somebody who's got some business issue might read an article in a magazine or a book or talk to somebody and be like, yep, that's the thing. That's the thing I need. And they come in the door. I mean, the same way they do this with Agile. They come in the door, like, give me this thing. And how do you talk them into not just grabbing the thing off the shelf and taking time to figure out what is actually wrong? First of all, by asking them, so what is the problem that you actually want to solve? When, when people come to me and say, hey, Urs, could you, could you help us get agile? That's the actual thing I'm asking them. What, what problem do you want to solve? How will, you, how will your work, how will your company be better once you've got agile? We'll be, we'll be agile, we'll be faster. Yeah, right. So um, I'm, I'm playing the part of the customer right now, by the way. Yeah, I got it. So <laughs> at, that, at that point, we start about uh, talking about assumptions. So does agility really make people faster? Um, for, okay. what kind of, for what kind of problems might agility be the right solution? And um, if, you, if you come over like that, like we're going to, we're going to get faster once we're agile. That's, that's really easy because we can, we can talk about the misconceptions therein. Like agile doesn't make you faster per se. It may give you a faster speed uh, when it comes to, to time to market, but the overall uh, speed of development doesn't necessarily increase because you have more uh, inspect and adapt cycles built in, whereas yeah. traditional waterfall just analyzing doing, testing, delivering is faster, but might miss the customer's intended goal by a, by a long stretch. So in the old way, we would capture, they would come in and say, give me X, and we'd capture all the requirements and put them in the document and get them to sign it and say, this is what we're going to build. And then we build the whole thing. And get rich on change requests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, or actually what happened to me a lot of the time when I first started doing this stuff was we'd give the client exactly what they asked for, They'd freak out because now that they look at it, they're like, that's not what I need. And we waited like three or four months to give them anything. And then we would end up working for free for a month to try to turn it into something that made the client happy. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how this approach, if we're taking, and I'm trying to play devil's advocate with it here, if we're taking this iterative incremental approach and we're trying to work in short cycles, how are we getting away from that idea of the customer being happy? I mean, do we have to make the customer happy? Do we have to make the customer happy? No, not necessarily happy. Um, we do have to to meet what he what he needs or what he wants, and that will in turn make him happy. But it's not us catering to his every wish. And okay. there, I see a crucial difference. Because so we're, if okay. we just do what he wants. He might he, he, his situation might not actually improve. Like. 
take the aspirin. I might get rich on selling you aspirin. But if I look at you and say, Dave, you, you look like you have some issues with your back and maybe we should uh, think about get, getting you to a doctor so you can figure out whether you need to do some, some training, some chiropractic, whatever. Yeah. Uh, then I might not get rich, but you might get happy. Okay. So in this type of approach, do you think that it is the responsibility of the product owner or whoever's coming up with the solution? It sounds like there's a big education component. Actually, I, I do think there is a big education component uh, when it comes to changing the customer's point of view and what is what his role is in in this let's call it in this game in this cycle. Yeah. Um, part of his part of it is the product owner's responsibility because he has to do the the actual interaction with the with the customer. Of course, he might delegate it, but now we're going into a process of framework details. But yes, so that's the product owner. And of course, there's also, if you have somebody who is with strong expertise with this, this way of working in general, like, like a Scrum Master or an Agile Coach, for example, or just somebody who's done a lot of Agile product development, he can, he can maybe explain it better than the particular product owner working on the particular product. So it's always a team effort. Okay. So you're going to need some kind of backup if you're doing it, this. I think it's a good idea to have some backup so I, as product owner, can focus on my on my product and focus on the actual interaction with the customer and how to figure out a solution, whereas somebody else can, in the meantime, work with the customer to to figure out how is how our points of view, our relative points of points of view, or our relative perspectives change. Okay, yes. so I'm yeah. going to ask you a question that I run into a lot about this that might be a little twitchy. I want to see what happens. Huh. Um, cause I have two different answers and they both come from the same person. How do you see this role, this product owner role in, um, if you're working in an iterative and incremental fashion, how is that different from a traditional product manager? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, do you think that the product manager is responsible for education of the customer and helping them discover the thing or are they just executing? No. Right there, I'd I'd say the the product manager is closer to to just executing. Okay. Um, but I must admit, I've never I've never worked with product managers very okay. closely. So I've I've always worked in an agile agile fashion. Um, there were product owners all over the place. So. I have to I have to figure that out when it comes to to project leads, for example. Then then the answer would be more clear. Okay. Uh, for product managers, I'm not sure. What what are you? What's your answer, Dave? So I don't have an answer. I lean on Roman Pischler, and he's got two different answers that can uh, contradict each other. Um, so one of the he's got an older post where he said that a product manager, or sorry, product owner was like a product manager plus because the product owner had more responsibility because um, they own the release and the product product manager might not have that but the and the product manager is often involved with the product over a longer span of time but then when strategize came out he used the terms in kind of a very almost interchangeable way and we did an interview about why and he said it was because in the different organizations um, the terms don't have a uniform definition the same way that like epic and theme and don't have lockdown definitions and mm -hmm. so it was always organizationally dependent 
Okay. So I'm always just trying to find some way of, I really want to be able to just like pigeonhole that one and have like, here's the answer, but it doesn't seem okay. to have any, you know, be a thing so, that you can lock down. Yeah. So in that case, I, I would ascribe to a product owner uh, a stronger or well, stronger independence, more autonomy over the product than I would, would uh, ascribe to a product manager. Okay. So what do you think? The, oh, go ahead. So, because one's just managing the thing, the other one's owning the thing. Yeah. Um, so what I, what I usually uh, say to people when they come along, like, I'm a product owner, but actually it's my boss making all the priority decisions. Yeah, they're like a drive-through window. Like, who's, who's the real product owner here? Yeah. Who really, who really um, makes our return investment decisions? Who really, who really sets priorities? And they say, yeah, it's my boss. So what are you? Oh, I'm the product backlog administrator. I'm the figurehead that gets held accountable. Yeah, right. Hired because my boss work. is too too high up to <laughs> be a product owner. Yeah. So, what do you think it takes to be good at this job? I mean, if you're just to give a little bit of context to it, if you're in this role, I'm assuming that you've got customers who are very strong-willed, whether they're internal or external. They're very sure about what that they have to have until they see it and realize it's not what they need. Um, what, how would you describe what makes a good product owner? Like if somebody's thinking about this role, what are the pieces of the puzzle they need to have? Okay, so first of all, making, making hard decisions. That's, that's a key component there. Okay. Uh, being, yeah, daring in a way to say no to people. People um, that can fire them. Potentially, yes. Okay. Um, but then again, if it if it comes to that, like if you say no to me, then I'm gonna fire you. Then we're again at who's the real product owner. Ah. Uh, so okay. if, if you if you uh, don't respect my my decisions as a product owner when it comes to to the implementation of the product, maybe then you're not really you the can, and you can enforce that non-respect. Then maybe you are the product owner. Me because okay. you're somewhere above me. So um, the ability to make decisions and uh, the uh, cojones to say no. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. Then, of course, communication, like being able to make these decisions and communicate them to people in a in a way that they can actually swallow. Okay. Uh, that's important. Hmm. What else? Well, you need to to be to burn for your product to to be in love with your product in some some way. Um, the huh. best the best product owners that I can think of they they care about details. Yeah. Without getting stuck up in them. Like there's there's this story about. Okay, this is getting very cliche now. Anyway. Um, I think, um, there, you know, Godwin's law. Go ahead, explain it, because I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with law, it. I don't in, know in, the focus in an was. online discussion, whoever brings up Hitler first loses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think in a product ownership discussion, whoever brings up Steve Jobs first. Ah. So wow, uh, anyway, nice. there's a story about Steve Jobs. <laughs> you, that can be your law. Yes. <laughs> okay. So... Um, there's a story about Steve Jobs and how, how much he, he cared about the or Dan, Can we make it Steve Jobs or Daniel Pink? 
<laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, I love Daniel Fink. He's cool. Um, so Steve Jobs, uh, uh, from from what we hear about him, was very much about the details in his products, so in, in the Apple products. But even more so, he cared about how other people' products um, interacted with his own products. And from what I hear, he he gave a call to. I think it was Larry Page from Google at one point. And the way I was told the story in the middle of the night, but that may be embellishment. Um, so he gave this call to Larry Page. And Larry, the yellow's wrong. And Larry was like, whatever. Um, what yellow? <laughs> and apparently the yellow, the, the way the yellow of the O in Google or one of the O's in Google on an iPhone was misdisplayed and it didn't fit Steve Jobs' um, sense of aesthetics. Wow. Um, yeah, caring, caring for, for that level of detail. Um, but then again, not getting, not getting stuck up and, and being a dictator about it. Yeah. That's what, what makes a great product owner. Caring uh, we spoke without about, being a giant ass to everyone around you. Right. Um, we spoke about Roman, Roman Pickler uh, yeah. a moment ago. Yeah. He has this, this axis of being a product dictator on the one hand and being a feature broker on the other hand. Okay. Uh, it's one of his more recent blog posts, I guess. So the, the feature dictator, that's the guy who, or the product dictator, that's the guy who makes all the decisions on its own, disregarding stakeholders. Um, daring to go to, to extreme decisions, whereas the feature broker, that's the guy who gets all the stakeholders in one room and tries to come up with a good good joint decision for the whole group. And I think those are two extremes and good product owners maybe somewhere in the middle and uh, being able to stretch in both directions. So I want to I want to add something to the Steve Jobs thing because this is I talk about this in my classes. I feel like every executive thinks uh, deeply inside they are convinced that they're Steve Jobs, um, <laughs> and there's a level of certainty or maybe arrogance or whatever that goes along with being able to call you know Larry Page and say that's the wrong yellow, yeah. um, and maybe he was right, but he's an anomaly. And for the rest of us to walk around thinking that we're that person, it would be a pretty dark world if everybody was Steve Jobs, but <laughs> we'd have great cool stuff to use. But um, a lot of people can't really pull that off. They don't have that background. They don't have that experience. So if somebody knows, if they know that they're not that deep, if they can buy a coffee maker in less than six months um, because they just want a coffee maker that works instead of freaking out about the design of it, <laughs> how how can they like fill that gap maybe they care but they also know they have some weaknesses yeah uh, well knowing knowing your own weaknesses to me never is a bad thing so um no knowing the weaknesses actually solve the battle because i know what to look out for i know where i where i might inadvertently expose myself and well and collapse if i yeah that metaphor so i have my team to support me as a, a, a team of experts thinking about solutions i don't build the product on my own so that's a help i have my stakeholders or my customers to rely on i can work with them it's not it's not them on the one side and me on the other side 
but rather uh, figuring out what what the good solution would be together. So okay. that's good as well. well. What about breaking down the walls? I know you spent, I mean, you've got the presentation on tearing down the wall between the two sides, but even uh, in the scrum team, we've got a product owner who's got to work with the development team and a scrum master, as well as the stakeholders and you know everyone else. How does somebody go about taking that wall down? Because that, that wall, it wasn't easily built and it's a pretty strong wall and it's hard to learn to trust people again. So what advice can you give to product owners about how to get past that? Well, you, you've, you've been talking about two walls now. One was between the product owner and his team, the other between yep. the product owner and his customer. Yeah. Um, for the product owner and his team, mm, I would say rely on, on the Scrum Master because the this wall, this conflict between product owner and team, it's it's built into Scrum. So the product owner is about is about return on investment. He's about the what question. He's about external quality. He's about getting out the product to the customer fast. Whereas the team is about how they're about internal quality, about maintainability. They're about getting the thing really, really, really good, technically speaking. Okay, and of course there there is a conflict there uh, because getting really good in a technical way and getting it out fast and uh, having a good return on investment that's that's not always the same thing, and okay. that's why we have the we have the scrum master for that particular reason to help them mitigate that conflict. Okay, so get get that guy and rely on him or get her and rely on her to and work with her. Um, for for you to to have a better collaboration with your team. Okay. Now, that's that's one of the reasons why I always advise that the scrum master is not part of the team or only if it's really really important. You mean part of the development team? Part of the development team, right? Yeah. Yes. yes, that's what I mean. Scared me there for a second. No, no. Okay. Uh, part, of, part of the scrum team always, <laughs> like, but not what? part of the development team. Okay. Right. So then we come to wall number two. Um, that's the wall between us as a provider, and or me in particular as a product a product owner, and the customer on the other side. And well, when I when I introduced the the cycle, I, I mentioned we have this provider, we have the solution coming out, and we have the customers wanted. All of them may or may not be um, hindered by the way we as an organization do business. So if you if you imagine the typical medium to large corporation. Uh, there is no such thing as a product development team, but rather we have silos. We may have a testing silo, we have, may have a development silo, a business analysis silo, um, a deployment silo, whatever. And all of them are doing their own separate jobs. There are separate fiefdoms. And so getting, getting this, the organization reorganized, restructured so that we could work as a team and changing changing our culture so that we actually think the, of, of the work being done as our work in service of the customer instead of my work as a developer and your work as a tester and his or her work as a business analyst. analyst. Yeah. That's, that, that's part one. Okay. So getting, getting teams to be real teams. Okay. And then 
we still might not be able to get out solutions fast because we're not set up that way. We do uh, one release a year or maybe two releases a year in our huge SAP system. And this is not something that that incentivizes the customer to give fast feedback because he only gets something out of us every every now and again. Yeah. So, And when they do change. get it, it's so big, it's going to take a while to provide feedback. Right, right. Uh, or another situation I've, I've been in, uh, I did dispatching software for, uh, for a power provider here in Germany. So the software they used to, to um, figure out how to, which, which power plant to run and, and what, at what capacity. Okay. And, well, originally we had, we had a cycle of three months uh, for a single release. Um, that was too slow for them, and our releases were buggy. Then we worked on getting faster. Got to one month, finally got to two weeks. And then we noticed, oh, we we're not we're not getting any feedback. Asking them, oh well, guys, uh, we don't know how to do with all these reasons. We're you're much much too fast for us now. So so hmm. what do you do there? That's a um, really cool situation. I mean, a, an interesting problem. So you get your yeah. your scrum master gets the team to a high performing state. You're delivering every two weeks, but you're creating things at a pace at which your customer cannot digest them and provide feedback, which defeats the whole purpose of churning them out every two weeks. Right. So what we, what we do there, still inviting the customer for, for uh, feedback, like for uh, sprint reviews, but not uh, setting out as a new, a new release every two weeks, but rather every month. Uh, so you I mean, were actually it's, it's, it's all about, by the customer's about. ability to handle the releases. Yeah, that that would be something we we would have done further down the road. Um, okay. Actually, I was was out of the team like three months or six months later, so we we never got to that. Okay, um, or I in particular never got to that. Um, however, uh, at at that point, we just slowed down the speed of our releases because we we didn't want to overwhelm our customer. Yeah, it's it's just that's a really interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about that for before. I mean, oh. it seems like a completely realistic problem to have, but I think everybody's so focused on getting the team functioning well. Yeah, that it's well, like, oh well, screw the customer; they're just going to have to figure it out and keep up. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it's it's about product market fit, right? So, and it's not only about the product there, but also about the cadence of delivery. Yeah. And if my cadence is too high, if I change the interface of my online Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, uh, every every other day, people will be put off because they can't figure out how to use it this day. Yeah. So okay. it has to be slow evolution there. Yeah. Um, so you've got to transform your company or your team along with your customer. Right. Or at least make right. it that they're able to keep pace with you. Yes. Um, uh Actually, I, I would focus on working, working on my side, changing or transforming my company because that's the part I can control. The customer, I, he's fickle. Can I control him? Is he even in my grasp? No, probably not unless he's a close, close friend or close business, business associate of mine. Okay. So uh, I'm going to go in a totally different direction than I was going to go now because you made me want to kind of have a little thing. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, there are a lot of digital agencies that I work with and they create 
app, small apps, small campaigns, uh, small sites, things like that. Some of them are larger, but for the most part, they're, they're fairly small. And um, in these organizations, at least as I, when I used to work in them, and I think a lot of them to, to this day, they will have teams where everybody's still in a silo, but you, if you're a developer, you might be working on six or seven different projects with multiple different configurations of teams on multiple different clients. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these organizations want to start to leverage Scrum or Kanban or some other form of Agile. So they want to be able to do this stuff. They're not currently set up to do it. So let's say that they're able to reorganize. Maybe they have a stable team taking work from different streams. Um, Two of the ones that I have talked to about this that have been fairly successful with it say that the burden of getting the customer to do this stuff is on the agency. So you come into my shop, you're, you're a potential client, you want the thing, I want to do Scrum, you don't care. Is, mm-hmm. it, is it fair to force the client into that? I'm, I'm surprised that that is actually a problem. Over, over here, the agencies I've been working with, they yeah. say, we need to get Agile because our customers insist. Oh, wow. Okay. So we they won't hire either. us unless we can provide, huh. can prove that we have product owners and Scrum Masters in place. Wow. Okay. Huh. Yeah, it's not that uh, way over here. <laughs> okay. So anyway, let's, let's stick with your scenario. So the customer comes in and you, you say... They don't care. They're, they're used to waterfall. They like throwing it over the wall, bring it back when it's ready so I can tell you I don't like it. Um, yeah. Oh, actually, actually I, I doubt that they, that they like that. Um, they like to have, uh, to have no fuss being done in product development and having, having a good solution. And they like to have somebody they can blame. And that's Maybe, the agency. Yeah. 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 So uh, if, if I were in that agency, I would, and, and, and aware in a choosing position, though, um, if, I, if I'm not in a choosing position, but rather have to, to see to me, make ends meet, maybe that's different. But right now, let's, let's assume I, I have the luxury of being able to talk to the customer and maybe even living with him saying no. Um, mm-hmm. Then I would point out the advantages of what's, what's in it for him. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. What's in it for him as a customer? I said, the heart of, at the heart of Agile is making something great for yeah. the customer to solve this problem. Um, if I think I can't make something great for him in the way he wants to work with me, maybe I and him, we would both be better off if we didn't work together. That's a very healthy way of looking at it. <laughs> I'm thinking about the money on the table, though. Um, yes, I know. This is really, it's, it's really interesting to me because I, I think, I mean, the, the companies I know that, that were successful at it, they, they had to take on the burden of transforming the client, even if the client didn't want it. And even yeah. though the client wasn't paying for it, yeah. which is, is a weird thing to me to kind of push down their throats. But um, one of the guys we were talking about, and he's like, well, what's the cost of not teaching them how to do this stuff? It's going to be right. right. So that was interesting. Yeah, the, the, the cost of not doing and what's what's the cost of that the client gets a worse product than he would would be able to get yeah. we um our our image our reputation is on the line here because he goes off and tells them they did they delivered the wrong the wrong thing he tells it to all his business friends he tells us in a golf club wherever he is yeah and they won't hire us whereas he might tell them otherwise 
it's really a pain working with this agency right now, but it will sing our praises once we're done. Later on, yeah. Yes, okay. and, I, and I want my praises sung. Cool. I have yeah. one more question for you, if you got sure. time. What is the one thing that most of the product owners that you work with, most of the folks that you know are doing this job, what is the one thing that if you could just snap your fingers and they would automatically all understand this, like you're Thanos, you have the glove on, <laughs> snap your fingers, all the product no owners. Spoilers, <laughs> yeah, they're suddenly going to understand one thing that they're currently not getting. What would it be? Wow. It got me there. <laughs> or what is the most common mistake that they make? Assuming that everything is all right the way it is. And they don't, they don't need to change. Their organization doesn't need to change. The way they're currently doing it will be just fine. Okay. So, or assuming they're powerless and can't change anything. That's, that's the variant thereof. Um, so I would, I would like them to realize the situation they're in and take responsibility to change things for the better. Okay. You know, it's interesting. I always say that um, this is the, the product owner is the hardest, scariest job on the scrum team because basically you have to disappoint people all day long. You're constantly having yeah. to make decisions that you never have enough information to make you know, sound decisions. But with what you just said, now I'm also thinking, and you've got to be constantly looking over your shoulder thinking, I'm screwed. I got to fix this now. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to this job, a lot of stress to this job. Well, fun, but... Yeah, but fun, right. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's fun. Um, okay, so if folks want to get in touch with you to, to dig into this a little more with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Okay, so easiest would be email. My business email is you are that's Urs, Urs Röpke, you are at itagile.de so oh, let me spell that out you are at it-agile.de okay and i'll make sure uh, you include a hyperlink in there yeah sure and well, whenever you're in hamburg you can just could just visit visit me our office is in central hamburg close to the station um just ring me up come over Let's okay. have a chat. And um, if you want, they want to take your classes, they can find them on the Scrum Alliance website. Uh, actually, I, I'm there. lagging. So I usually only put them online once it's done, but they can find them on our, our corporate website. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, apart from that, if, if people want to get in touch and do something else, like train Tai Chi, if you're in Hamburg, just ring me up and let's uh, have, have a session. Cool. All right, man. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. And enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Cool, Dave. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, yeah, see you around. Mm -hmm.